and welcome to episode one of the Ghost Punk Horror Podcast. I'm Matt Burke, your host for all the ghosts. Horror is a a really interesting genre in that when we watch the movies, read the books, play the games, we do so specifically because we want to be scared, for the most part. We want to feel the emotions uh, that fear brings up. In that way, horror is a really unique genre compared to, say, mystery or fantasy or, or what have you, in that it's about disempowerment. Instead of feeling in control, we're, we're faced with the, the nervous anxiety and intensity of what terrifies us. And we hope that that is a guiding principle throughout the story. I myself am a a budding horror writer, still need to finish a few projects, Uh, still need to get published. But when when I'm working on a piece, uh, I, I really focus not on making the protagonist or or the characters in general feeling capable. I, I want to take that power away from them so that they feel the desperation of a situation, or or they constantly feel themselves being taken down a peg, and it makes it difficult for them to come to terms with what's going on. They, they need to be able to master themselves, and even then, that's no guarantee that they're going to survive until the end. So why is this? Why does horror work mostly in the realm of disempowerment when we are talking about instilling fear into an audience? For that, uh, let's talk first about power fantasies. Power fantasies kind of come up in uh, the discourse with um, uh, escapism. What, What is a power fantasy? Generally, it's a state in fiction wherein the audience is able to transpose themselves onto the protagonist or a character and use them as a proxy to feel strength, ability, and feeling a a higher level of being capable than what they would feel in their normal, average day-to-day lives. Michael Shaban's uh, Escapist from The Amazing Adventures in Cavalier and Clay is a proxy for Joseph Cavalier and Sam Clay to escape their uh, day-to-day lives as poor Jewish boys living in New York just before the Second World War and during, feeling that they have very little control over their lives. They go on to create The Escapist to break into the the growing comic book phenomenon of the 1930s and 40s. And in doing so, especially for Joseph Cavalier, who was trained to be an escape artist in a way that he isn't he that Joseph Cavalier is no longer hemmed in by his normal circumstances. He feels guilt over being taken out of Prague just ahead of the Nazis and escaping. And he he's constantly running from the guilt and shame that he feels from that. As the escapist, he has a familiar framework uh to 
paste a character onto that is his own escape from the uh, turmoil that he feels inside. The escapist is not like Joseph Cavalier in that he is capable, he is strong, he's powerful. Uh, He is able to do everything that Joseph cannot, and as such, he uses him uh, throughout the novel in order to sort of break away from those circumstances. Let's take another example, Uh, one from Star Wars, let's say. In The Mandalorian, probably one of my favorite pieces of Star Wars fiction to come out in in the past four or five years, Din Djarin as the Mando is a badass bounty hunter who has essentially a magic everything shield with his Beskar armor that's just as powerful as his plot armor. He's able to deflect blaster bolts, he is good in a fight, he has a cool calculating attitude, and can draw a gun on somebody faster than they're able to think. One of the key features of the Mandalorian is that he never, okay, almost never, takes off his helmet. That means that underneath... He could be anyone, and it's much easier for us as the audience to transpose ourselves onto the Mandalorian. We can easily see ourselves under the helmet and in the armor and able to fantasize about what would life be in this crazy space western where being badass is your only real hope for survival. So I mentioned before that... Horror works best as a disempowerment fantasy rather than a power fantasy. If a power fantasy relies on strength and ability for escapism, how how does that work in the opposite? Disempowerment fantasies come into play when we want to feel out of control, when we want our agency to be removed from us. Bondage kinks work on this similar principle. That idea of the high-powered CEO hiring a dominatrix is there so that the CEO always feels in control. That they, Or at least they have to pretend that they're in control. They always have to keep up this facade that they know what they're doing even when they don't. And as such, when the dominatrix comes into play, uh, they are able to get out of their heads for a little bit. They're able to have that power removed from them and placed into the hands of somebody who is more adept at playing that role. It doesn't always have to be whips and chains and leather bodysuits either. If I hypothetically pull up a Larkin Love video where she assures me that I've been a very good boy for her, that pulls on a gentle string where affection and care are the rewards for uh, letting go of control. That's all hypothetically speaking, by the way. I'm not saying that I do that. Religion works on a similar principle, too. Um, Now, this is not... uh, disparaging anyone's belief or or faith system here. This is just working um, as a a critical view of it. I grew up in the South. Uh, I grew... I was raised in the Methodist church. I've since been a lapsed Methodist for about the past 15 years. But whenever I would talk to some of my friends in, in high school or what have you, most of them were Baptists. And Methodists and Baptists, while they're Protestants, they, they believe almost entirely different things. Methodism is about uh, the method of becoming more Christ-like, whereas the, the Baptist belief, from what I picked up, was uh, surrendering control to God, surrendering your life to God, uh, allowing him to uh, embrace you in his infinite love and also wrath. God takes away all that stress, all that pain, all that uh, worry, and replaces it with love. Now also, too, on the flip side of that, 
because God is in control of your life, according to this uh, idea. Whatever happens in your life that is good uh, or, or positive is not the result of your own doing, your will and determination, your, your skill and capability. Uh, that is a blessing from God. And as such, when you turn around, you glorify him, uh, in return, he will continue to multiply those blessings um, as long as you are doing the very specific things that he likes and not doing the specific things that he doesn't like, according to what the preacher tells you. Uh, religion is probably the ultimate disempowerment in fantasy in that it is entirely leaving everything up to uh, cosmic forces beyond one's command. So, so looking at horror in this way, when we transpose ourselves as the audience onto a, a character in a horror story, we are deliberately giving up control. There is a mystery that's going on, and the, the characters need to put themselves into a position of some danger, whether that is physical, spiritual, cosmic, or existential, or any number of things. Ultimately, we're there to follow along through this proxy character and experience the, the fears that are brought up in that. In William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, Chris McNeil is struggling when her daughter Reagan is starting to act out and exhibiting the, the signs of uh, psychological trauma and distress and strain. As a result, she is trying to figure out what the root of the problem is. She goes to psychiatrists. Nothing that they do seems to work. She goes to doctors. Nothing they do seem to work. Eventually, she goes to uh, the Catholic Church, and Father Karras is attempting to fit, diagnose the situation and trying to rule out a, frankly, secular problem. And it's not until they've worn out all other options that they eventually try to, to work with an exorcism, a practice that by the time of uh, the exorcist in the 60s and 70s uh, is a practice that's going out of style, if not completely uh, unheard of at the time for the Catholic Church. See if this long dead uh, ritual will be able to work against what is possibly a demonic possession. So it Therein, we, we look at The Exorcist, and it's about putting faith into systems that we don't fully understand, whether that is medicine, religion, uh, or psychology, and trusting that the experts know what they're talking about, even when they're not entirely sure that their school of thought is the right one for the situation. Uh, when we put ourselves into Chris McNeil's shoes, we, we feel that desperation. If you have ever taken care of a sick child or have been around a parent of a sick child, that, that worry is all over the place, uh, that making sure that this kid is uh, going to be all right and, and uh, there, there's nothing horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, likewise, if we put ourselves into Father Karras's shoes, we're, we're having to deal with questions about our faith and, and also to trying to figure out how uh, the modern world can help, whereas the, the old ways of doing things, the traditional ways of doing things may not be adequate uh, or, or appropriate for the situation. Uh, Father Karras is struggling with his faith. 
he takes a massive interest in secular practices and he wants to see how the church can be improved by uh, learning more about psychology and, and while also trying to figure out if there is a place for religion in the uh, modern day America circa 1970, whatever it is. Let, let, let's do a, a very big comparison right now. I'm going to give you a premise and let's see if you can figure out what story I'm talking about. In the far-flung future, a crew aboard a spaceship comes across a uh, seemingly deserted planet, only to find that they are amongst an alien predator. This alien is seemingly invincible. It stalks the crew, using the shadows to its advantage. It kills off the crew, who have no idea what they're up against. They, they don't really have a way to fight back. And, and as more and more of them die, they're, they're not able to... Uh, it becomes more apparent that they're not going to be able to complete their mission, if, at the very least, if they're going to be able to escape entirely. So for those of you playing at home, uh, if you guessed that the uh, story that I was talking about was Pitch Black with Vin Diesel, you would be absolutely correct. Uh, but I will give you some uh, brownie points if you uh, thought it was uh, Ridley Scott's Alien. The very, very similar stories all throughout. But there, there is a huge, huge difference, and that is in... Uh, the the difference between Richard B. Riddick of Pitch Black and Ellen Ripley in Alien. Pitch Black is much more of an action science fiction power fantasy in that Riddick is a badass, muscle-bound, chosen one slam poet who is handy in a fight. Uh, he's a survivor. He's able to handle pretty much any problem that comes his way. Ellen Ripley is also a badass in her own right, but the difference being is that Ripley is just another squishy human who isn't an experienced fighter. She's working as a contractor, hauling cargo and freight for the Weyland-Yutani Corporation. She's essentially uh, the equivalent of space, UPS, or DHL. Neither she nor the rest of the crew are able to really handle themselves against a powerful predator like the Xenomorph. And by the time of the sequel, Aliens, we see that not even the, the space marines of the, this universe are, are very handy in a fight against the, the Xenomorphs either. When we transpose ourselves onto Ripley, we feel the stress and nervous tension of her situation as things progressively get worse. When she confronts Mother, the, the onboard navigational AI, she gets locked out. Uh, Mother is uh, taking direction stri strictly according to Weyland-Yutani protocol, and Weyland-Yutani wants the Xenomorph. They want to uh, have it to, for further study, and they're using the crew as essentially uh, lab rats to see what the Xenomorph does before they take control of it. She's lost and scared and trying to figure out a way to stay one step ahead of the Xenomorph while she's attempting to escape the, the Nostromo, her, her, her spaceship. Meanwhile, the rest of her crew are picked off and ripped apart by the Xenomorph. When we look at Riddick, he, he, he goes up against the, the aliens, which I'm now finding out are called Bioraptors. Didn't really know that before. <laughs> but he, he uses, but he's able to turn the, the tables on the situation. The only one who can properly see the Bioraptors, and he's the only one who can actually really fight them. He's strong, he's agile, he embraces a, a 
predatorial position in the same way that they do. We put ourselves in Riddick's shoes. We feel badass. We feel cool. Uh, it's cool to be Vin Diesel. It's cool to be Richard B. Riddick. We know that Richard B. Riddick is going to fuck some shit up. Whereas the the situation as Ellen Ripley and anyone who's around her in uh, an alien movie is going to be a lot more desperate, a lot more fraught with the the, the worry that you're not going to be able to survive, uh, which makes it uh, an effective piece of horror. You, you can even start out like with characters that are, are seemingly pow- power fantasy characters or, or are able to handle themselves and completely flip that on their head that they that for all of their experience, they struggle just as much. Uh, Take a look at uh, Nick Cutter's Little Heaven, if you haven't already. That's probably one of my favorite horror novels that I've encountered in the past decade or so. In it, you have three uh, bounty hunters who have been doing what they've been doing for quite some time. They kick ass, they take names, uh, they can bring them in warm or they can bring them in cold. They're sent to a uh, cult compound uh, where not Jim Jones, has taken over and they're trying to find the child of a woman whose estranged husband went off to join the cult. In it, uh, they have to face some cosmic abominations that are feral. They absolutely rip people to shreds. They turn the entire place into a bloodbath and they have to come to terms with the fact that while they might be able to handle humans just fine, they don't know what they're up against. They're they're up against a cosmic uh, abomination that is far beyond their understanding. Um, and because of that, they, they don't know how to anticipate it. They are in just as much peril as everyone else uh, who is a, a normal, squishy person. In that way, the, the disempowerment is twofold. We, we've been tricked at the very beginning uh, by Cutter giving us these characters who uh, can definitely handle themselves. And, and when they, they get to the meat of the story... Uh, they realize that they are completely outmatched, just as much at a loss as, as anyone else. They're prey, and the the position moves into survival instead of trying to fight back. That they they try to hold out as long as they can and make sure that everyone can survive, which it becomes entirely more desperate as the story goes on. When a story is effective at using horror, it strips power away from the characters so that the audience is able to put themselves in their shoes. As such, running away and getting to a a safer location uh, becomes the best way of handling a situation. So ultimately, uh, when when horror is doing some good shit, uh, it's when you are feeling that nervous tension you're feeling scared which is immensely harder to do if you feel like you can put yourself in the character's shoes and feel like you can handle a situation so with that i'm going to turn the conversation over to you guys what do you think do you feel that horror works best as sort of this disempowerment fantasy that we've been discussing, or does that even really matter? Do you need to feel that a character feels a lack of agency, or or do they function just as well from a position of strength, like, say, Richard B. Riddick? Or does any of that really matter at the end of the day? Does it, the aesthetic of horror, do, do the themes of horror still resonate with or without playing to disempowerment or empowerment.
Thank you all so much for listening. This has been Ghost Punk. I've been Matt Burke. You've been wonderful. And remember, if you find yourself stranded in the middle of deep space with a bloodthirsty alien on your tail, just keep thinking to yourselves that you are way too cool to die before the credits roll. That should give you about four or five minutes to get to the escape pod before you watch your entrails get ripped out of your chest. Until next time, friends and neighbors. Bye. Bye.